Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Matthew 13, Luke 8, and Luke 13. Now the thinking behind this week's Come Follow Me is that we would focus on the parables. That's why we jump back to Luke 8 to kind of cover the parable section in Luke 13. But we're really not going to cover much in Luke It's mostly going to be the parables of Matthew 13. Now, that being said, there's a couple things that Mike wanted to talk about in Luke, culturally, kind of historically. So we're going to start with that. Let's jump to Luke 8, Luke 13, cover a couple of those, and then we're going to spend the rest of the podcast talking about these wonderful parables that the Savior gives in Matthew 13. I want to start by just acknowledging that there's some complexity going on with Luke chapter 8, verse 2. And a few centuries after Christ, there was an individual who purported that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Now, that's not anywhere in the scriptures. It just isn't there. I believe that Mary was a visionary. That's how I'm going to view Mary. And in this text, the Greek lends itself to that interpretation. And so the question has arisen, you know, historians have looked at this and said, okay, well, here's the tradition. Where does it come from? And there's a couple places in the scriptures where it talks about Mary Magdalene and seven daimones, as it's said in the Greek. And so what I want to talk about are those first three verses in Luke chapter 8. So here's how they read. It came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. Now, We put the entire Greek text of that verse in the show notes, but here is how it reads as I translate it. Verse 2, And some women which were cured from evil spirits and weaknesses, Mary, she being called Magdalene, from whom seven daimonia, she has come out. Now that's a literal translation. Now that's different than having seven daimons or seven demons cast out of her. It says, from whom seven daimonia, she has come out. This is important. This verse is not talking about demons coming out of Mary. Rather, she is coming out, or more literally, she has come out of seven daimons. This matters, and this is how the Greek reads, regardless of how other later translators may have read the verse. If they, meaning the daimons, had come out of her, then the pluperfect Greek form would have read differently. And I put the pluperfect different Greek form as it would have read if that was the translation. And we give you the actual Greek in there where it says she has come out. So what's the point? And why does this matter? This matters for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons why this matters is because people that spoke and wrote in Greek anciently understood the daimonia to be different than perhaps we do. The daimones in Greek, at least in their culture, the way they understood it, these daimones were intermediate beings between humans and gods. They weren't quite human, but they weren't quite godly. They were godly in the sense that they could venture forth above heaven and earth, 
probably the best expression I could give for a daimon in our vernacular would be like an angel. They were powerful beings, and they had the ability to travel. And the Greeks believed that daimons could bring fortune or bad luck, and they could actually be appeased with sacrifices. Some daimons were actually associated with specific domains in antiquity, such as things like death or dreams or nature. And you could sacrifice to a certain daimon and have luck or good fortune given to you. And so in ancient Greek mythology, the daimons were sometimes associated with the heavens. For example, the daimons of the stars were considered to be responsible for guiding the planets or stars in their celestial paths as they went in the sky. And so in this sense, they could be seen as guardians of the heavens, overseeing the movements of celestial bodies and ensuring that everything worked smoothly. This is important because one of the things I want to focus on is their aspect as guardians or as guardians over the heavens. And so This may sound strange to some of us, but we just need to sit in this and realize that the Bible's coming from a different culture and a different space. And there was this rise in apocalyptic literature right around the time of the destruction of the first temple, right around 586. And the Jews, many of them, were starting to discuss visionary ascents and ascents up to heaven or ascension texts. Sometimes in the in the biblical literature, it's called hecalot literature. That's another term that's used for this. And these Jews from the Second Temple period, and then the early Christians as well, had this view that you could ascend and become like God. Here's an example of some of these texts. We have texts like uh, Third Baruch, or the uh, the Ascension of Isaiah, or the Apocalypse of Abraham, or Third Enoch, or even the Book of the Watchers, which is another book of Enoch. Or, for example, in, in Latter-day Saint uh, literature, the Book of Moses, or even the First Vision of Joseph Smith, or First Nephi, or even Isaiah 6 could be an Ascension text, where Isaiah sees the face of God. In these Ascension texts, many of them not in our canon, there is this depiction of heaven in the plural. Now, a lot of times in the Greek New Testament, the heaven is in the plural. And I've tried to kind of talk about that or at least translate it in the show notes as we go through it. And so in these Ascension texts, there were seven heavens. And to me, I just sit in that space knowing that there were Christians that acknowledged that there were like levels of heaven. And as Latter-day Saints, we do acknowledge that there are many degrees. Section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants kind of opens us up to this. Now, I know seven heavens is not explicitly discussed in the New Testament, but heaven is typically plural in the New Testament, heavens plural. And what I'm trying to do is just present a possibility as to what's going on with Luke 8. And I look at Mary as someone who is really special. And so I'm going to present Mary as a visionary. And so my contention, my thesis is this. I believe that Mary was a visionary, like unto Isaiah, like unto Abraham, that she had basically done the circuit. She had gone through the seven heavens, and at each heaven there would be a guardian. We read about this in the texts, and a lot of times they're called guardians, but they could also be called daimons in the sense that they're individuals who are guardians of these levels. And according to these texts, you would have to give that guardian a password, and then the guardian would escort you as a guide to the next level. And then finally, at the seventh heaven, the visionary would see and behold the face of God. That's how I'm going to view Mary. And in this text, the Greek lends itself to that interpretation. Now, I know that that's not a popular interpretation. If you go to the scholarship, in my opinion, they're just not translating the Greek properly. 
I really do believe that this would be translated differently if this was just in a text like, say we were translating Hesiod or we were reading uh, Plato. We would translate the text the way it reads because there's nothing theologically at stake at the translating of these words if we're reading Plato or if we're reading Socrates or Euripides or Sophocles. It just doesn't matter. We're just talking about Greek. But because there's so much at stake with this character of Mary and because of centuries of tradition in Christianity, she has been denigrated and lessened, in my opinion. And what I'm trying to say is the Greek doesn't say what it says in the King James. Now, all that being said, I have have to acknowledge this. There's another side to this, and that's Mark 16:9. It clearly does say that he cast out seven daimonia out of her, and in the New Testament, daimonia is typically demons. Now, this is also complicated because in scholarship, most scholars look at Mark 16:9 as a later edition after the original gospel of Mark. Most scholars look at Mark 16 and they say Mark 16 ends at verse 8 and that somebody else added this later. If that's true, then this argument doesn't matter and everything I just said kind of still holds water, but I just want to acknowledge it because it's in our canonized scriptures. So after Mark 16:8, there's this addition, there's a few verses added, and the first verse that's added is this verse in reference to Mary Magdalene and it's Mark 16 verse 9, and it reads, And he, having risen early on the first of the Sabbath, he was seen first by Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out or thrown out or sent out seven daimonia. It clearly does say that in the Greek, that Jesus cast out seven daimons. Now, that would be demons to us that speak English, and that's how uh, daimonia are translated in the New Testament as demons. But I'm just offering uh, that other view. We just need to make sure that we're looking at the words and we're translating it and looking at it right. And so my point, and I think it still holds water, is that Luke chapter 8, verse 2, is not saying what it says in the text. Once again, Luke chapter 8, verse 7, 2 says that she came out of seven daimonia. And I'm going to take that to be the guardians, these intermediaries or these angels that are the guardians of the seven heavens. I believe that Mary was a visionary, but there was an individual who purported that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Now that's not anywhere in the scriptures. It just isn't there. Okay, now we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to look at Luke 13. This is where we read about the situation that happened between some Galileans that seemed to be rebels, and Pilate, who was the Roman governor of at least of Jerusalem at the time. And then we also read about this tower that fell over in verse 4. So here's how it reads in Luke 13, starting in verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered these things? I tell ye nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I say unto you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish." What's going on here? Well, first we need to kind of acknowledge what is the historical circumstance that's kind of the background to Luke chapter 13. This is probably a fragmented account of something that Pontius Pilate did in his punishment of the Jews in Galilee. Remember, some of the Galileans at the time of Pilate were known to be kind of rabble-rousers. They were a little bit rebellious. They, they kind of went their own way. They were kind of like... Uh, difficult and hard to handle group. They weren't always compliant. And so this account in Luke chapter 13 
is referring to a massacre of some of the Galileans by Pilate's soldiers while these people from Galilee were down in Jerusalem at the temple offering sacrifices. And that's kind of how it reads, how that Pilate had mingled their blood with their sacrifices in verse 1. In other words, he killed them while they were offering sacrifice in Jerusalem. This incident seems to be mentioned by Jesus as an example to emphasize his point that suffering and death are not always the consequence of something that we did. There's a really great rendition of this in Dallas Jenkins's depiction of Jesus when some people ask Jesus that question, and they say, you know, this guy, he's suffering. Clearly, he did something wrong, and Jesus looks at them, and he says, you guys, it doesn't work that way. And I really like that line. I think you could insert that here in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. You could literally write in your scriptures, hey, guys, it doesn't work that way. Just because something bad happens to you, it doesn't mean you necessarily did something horrible. Now, we put in the show notes an account from Josephus that does talk about Pilate having some individuals killed. And what Josephus is talking about may be this event, but it's not perfect. It doesn't line up perfectly. And so I sit in the space of not knowing exactly you know, if the event that Jesus is discussing in verse 1 of Luke 13 is the event, if it's the same event that Josephus is referring to, I don't know. That may be the case, but either way, the principle holds true. Just because the government came after you doesn't always mean that it's because something you did wrong. Classic example, Jesus. The Roman government crucified him. He did nothing wrong. And so Jesus seems to say to these people, it doesn't necessarily mean that they did something wrong. Now, there's a lot of texts in the Bible that seem to indicate that disaster is a result of sinning. You've got Deuteronomy 28 through 30. You've got Job chapter 4 and Ezekiel 18. And this conviction is actually reflected in John chapter 9, verses 2 through 3, when the blind man's brought and the question laid at Jesus' feet, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's a very interesting question. And once again, Jesus' answer, hey guys, it doesn't work that way. Now, that kind of deals with their assumptions. There's another thing going on here, and this is just my speculation, but I think there's some strength to this argument. This whole question may have been a setup. You see, some of the Jews could have been coming to the Lord and reporting this incident to him to see how he would respond. You see, if he answered them, hey, Pilate did the right thing when he killed these guys, then his questioners could accuse him and say, oh, Jesus, well, you're clearly against the law. Since you justified the killing of those who slaughtered, sacrifices to God. I mean, these were pious Jews offering sacrifices to God. Clearly, Jesus, you hate the law. Now, if he answered his questioners that these individuals were wrongly accused and wrongly slain, then they could take his response to Pilate, and they could tell Pilate, hey, there's this guy named Jesus, and he's undermining your authority. And so either way, however he answered this question, it could have been looked at as a setup to trap him. And so I love his answer where he doesn't answer the question. And he just basically says, it doesn't work that way. And if you guys think you're better than them, good luck, because everybody has to repent. Now, as to the Tower of Siloam in verse 4, that may have been on Jerusalem's city wall above the Pool of Siloam. Some suggest that that's what's going on. Um, that it was associated with the construction of something to do with the water supply system for the city. The feast discussed may have been Passover. We're not sure. But either way, 
the question and the setup is essentially that question. If something bad happens, is it because they did something wrong? And in both instances, Jesus is just saying, hey, listen, we all have to repent. We really do need to go to that John 9 reference that Mike just made about the man born blind. Passing a man born blind, the disciples asked Jesus, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's that assumption that tragedy and blindness and heartbreak are a consequence of sin. They're a punishment. Somehow this man may have sinned in premortal life, and his punishment was to be born blind, or that his parents sinned, and their punishment was that their child was born blind. That's the prevailing assumption that they're making. And Jesus corrects that and says, neither hath this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God may be manifested in him. And I think a good reading of 2 Nephi chapter 2 is appropriate, that there must needs be opposition in all things in order for us to have agency. So don't let that doctrine shake you. Yes, it's found in the scriptures, but it is not found in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are punished necessarily for our transgressions. We all need to repent, and there's so many reasons why tragedy happens in our lives. There are many reasons why that man was born blind probably so that Jesus could heal him in front of everyone else. So trusting the Savior knows us and knows what's best for us is absolutely critical. And never interpreting the fact that a bad thing happening in my life is because I sinned. That's important doctrine to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, to conclude Luke 13, after this experience with that question and that back and forth in the first five verses, verses 6 through 9 is where Jesus talks about the parable of the barren fig tree, and the point seems to be verse 9. If it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after thou shalt cut it down. And essentially what he's saying is we need to bear good fruit. And then in 10 through 17 of Luke 13, a woman is healed on the Sabbath, and he says to her in verse 12, you are loosed from your infirmity. And ancient medical writers used words like loose, to describe the removal of a curvature of the spine and related ailments. This term was also used from freeing people from a demon's grip. And so in this circumstance, notice what it says in verse 11, that this woman had this infirmity for 18 years and was bowed together and could not lift herself up. So it seems to be some kind of spinal deformity, which would then fit with his language. You're loosed from this infirmity. And so they come at him once again because he heals on the Sabbath. And I always sit and laugh and go, guys, he just performed a miracle. We're talking about what day it is. It's just, to me, it's silly, but it's in there. Now, Luke 13, 18 through 21 is the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. Now we're going to talk about the mustard seed later. And so we'll come back to that. But then there's this really interesting question towards the end of Luke 13. And the question essentially on the table that they bring to him is this, what are my chances? Verse 23, look what it says. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. And then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. And he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, 
all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And so there seems to be this question, and I think sometimes we can get depressed and say things like, well, do I even have a chance? And I remind you what we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, Lord, I have done all these things. Can I come into the kingdom? But these people are kind of having a terrestrial attitude. I think the explanation to this is, can terrestrial people enter the celestial kingdom? And the answer to that is no. Terrestrial people who don't want to do all that the celestial life requires of them cannot enter the celestial kingdom. Now, that's why Heavenly Father has a kingdom for them. He wants them to be happy. But please don't read these verses and interpret that you can't go into the celestial kingdom. Because if you desire a celestial attitude, if you will strive, and if your attitude is, Lord, I'm coming. I know I'm coming slowly, but I'm coming. And I want to be celestial. And if you'll help me, I'll work on my terrestrial habits and get rid of them. Those are the people who will enter the celestial kingdom. So please understand that context matters here, and Jesus is addressing that concept of terrestrial people who do not want to do celestial work will not be allowed into the celestial kingdom. Excellent. I can't say enough about that idea. One of my favorite books on this very question was written by Alonzo Gaskill, and he said this. He says, we need to remember, we need to firmly believe that the plan of salvation, the great plan of happiness, was designed to work. Indeed, it would not be called the eternal plan of salvation or the plan of happiness, etc., if it didn't work, particularly if its primary effect was the damnation of the vast majority of God's offspring. Yes, agency must be preserved, but to design a plan that is so difficult to succeed and that most would fail does not preserve agency. On the contrary, such a plan would thwart both agency and the very thing the plan was created to accomplish, namely our exaltation. The thought that God would promote something that would ensure that the vast majority of his children would never again be able to dwell in his presence is incomprehensible. I love that quote. There's so much more. We put some of this in the show notes. A great talk by Elder Bruce McConkie called The Probationary Test of Mortality, that the Savior's plan is a plan of victory. And like Bryce said, the context matters. And frankly, the way I see it, God's arms are wide open. He wants us to come home, and we will go where we will be happiest. And I do see, in my mind's eye, I do see that most of God's children when presented all the truth and it's all laid out before them, will want to choose the light. And I'm going to emphasize what the Book of Mormon teaches, and I'm going to say it as clearly as I believe it should be said. Everyone who truly desires to be a celestial person will be a celestial person. I believe that with all my soul. And I relish this verse from the book of Alma chapter 29. Do you remember when Alma says, I wish I were an angel and I could just shake the earth and force people to repent. I wish I could force people to repent. And then he catches himself and I says, but what I sin in my wish, because that's not the way it works. And then he says the following. I ought not to harrow up in my desires the firm decree of a just God, for I know that he granteth unto men according to their desires. Now I'm going to jump to verse 5. I know that good and evil have come before all men, and he that knoweth not good and evil is blameless. But he that knoweth good and evil 
To him it is given according to his desires, whether he desireth good or evil, life or death, joy or remorse of conscience. May I suggest that anyone who truly wants a celestial life that I want, even though I'm striving to get rid of all my celestial and terrestrial habits, anyone who truly wants to dwell in the celestial kingdom will dwell in the celestial kingdom. One more verse, Alma 41, 5 and 6. One raised to happiness according to his desires of happiness, or good according to his desires of good, and the other to evil according to his desires of evil. I think the Lord is very clear in the Book of Mormon that your desires are going to win out. Amen. Amen. Okay, those are some things that we really wanted to cover, but really the focus of this week's Come Follow Me is going to be Jesus's addressing parables, why he's using them, some of the most powerful parables, and they really are beautiful. They're incredibly beautiful. Now, let me correct what I think can be a misconception. In Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus starts giving parables, and they come to him, in verse 10 they say, why do you speak in parables? He says in verse 11, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundant. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. In other words, he seems to suggest that he speaks in parables to hide the meaning from those who would be condemned by it. And I understand that, and I am in no way going to argue with that. What I'm going to ask is that you then not dismiss parables because they're written to hide truth from other people. And my evidence for that is, in his most sacred halls, in the Lord's most sacred places, where those very people would not be allowed to enter, what does he speak? He again, you could say, speaks in parables. So I would invite you to master the art of learning from parables and understand that, yes, by speaking in parables, he frees people who don't understand them from the condemnation that they may face if they understood them. I get that. But I would invite you to say there is enormously powerful truth in these parables. I'm not going to dismiss them. So let's look at the first one. It is affectionately known by us as the parable of the sower. But the variable here is not the sower. The sower is not the subject of the parable. It probably should be referred to as the parable of the soil. And you and I are the soil. So the parable is trying to say, do you understand that you are the soil that receives the seed of the kingdom. Now, to make my point that this is powerful doctrine that demands our attention, can you think of a chapter in the Book of Mormon that talks about receiving a seed and growing it, and it becomes a tree, and we eat the fruit? Clearly, this is a doctrine the Lord intends us to have. That's Alma chapter 32. So let's focus on the soil, 
what do I do in the soil of my life that interferes with the growing of the gospel seed? There are four types of soil here. I can be one of four. My attitude and my behavior can produce four types of environments in which the gospel seed grows. Number one is wayside soil. Now, the problem with wayside soil is it's trodden down under the feet of men. This is the soil that is so walked on, so trodden down, that it's too hard for the seed to get in. And there are those who will not even let the seed of the gospel into their hearts. In the words of the Book of Mormon, they don't give place. Don't be one of those that just refuses to give the gospel a try. Now, the second soil is stony soil. So, what is the modern equivalent of stony soil? I was going to say Harriman. Yeah. I live in Harriman. I live in South Jordan. It's so rocky. And if you want to know what stony soil is like, come out to my house in South Jordan, because you can't dig more than two inches before you hit rock. Now, the problem with stony soil is it does not retain water. It doesn't hold on to the moisture. Now, if you, again, if you compare this to Alma chapter 32, he's talking about letting the roots go deep. You have to have deep roots. And when your root is deep, the heat of the sun can come out and you'll be fine. If what I pull out of my roots is stronger than the heat of the sun, then I'm going to be just fine. That's how you grow cotton in Arizona, for example. They have deep roots, and they pull from the soil the moisture that they need to combat the heat of the sun. Now, what if I don't have deep roots? In that case, the heat of the sun is going to be greater than the moisture I can pull out of the roots, and I will shrivel. This is what we see happening throughout the church today. People who don't have deep roots, they don't have, and I love verse 21 of Matthew 13, they don't have root in themselves. If you don't have roots, then the heat of the sun comes out. Verse 21, tribulation or persecution rise, and by and by you're offended. You are going to have to face the heat of the world, persecution people making comments, doubts, attacks on our faith. I think something many of us are used to is being told by our dear friends that we're not Christians. Yeah. And that's, by the way, that's really hard. That's the heat of the sun. Now, if your testimony doesn't have nutrients underneath, if you can't pull from the soil moisture to combat that heat, then the direction your plant is going is shriveling inward. The heat is pushing it away. And in the language of the Book of Mormon, you will pluck it and cast it out. And we watch many people pluck their own testimony out because they didn't have the nutrients that it needed. So stony soil is the lack of nutrients in your life to combat the heat of the world. Do you pray? Do you read the scriptures? Do you attend the temple? Do you fill your life with the things of God that will nourish your soul? Make sure you are feeding your plant, feed your testimony constantly. 
I think that's one of the reasons there is Come Follow Me, is to encourage you to take time each week and nourish that seed and have deep roots. Now, the next one is thorny soil. Thorny soil is competitive. Thorny soil is when I have things in my life that compete for my attention. They may or may not be evil things. Jesus mentioned some evil things, the care of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, but sometimes it's the problem of having good things that compete for my time. Richard G. Scott lamented one time, Satan has a powerful tool to use against good people. It is distraction. He would have good people fill life with good things, so there is no room for the essential ones. That's thorny soil, and it comes in a lot of shapes and a lot of flavors. Sometimes the thorns that compete are the appetites of the flesh or the natural man's temptations, and they compete with the seed that's trying to grow, and they draw resources away from it, which is going to cause the seed to not have enough nutrients. If there are distractions, if there are competitions, if there's something in your soul that's pulling time and energy and effort and attention away from the kingdom of God, it's going to pull you in that direction and your seed is going to shrivel. I remind you that Korahor confessed when asked, why did you teach something that you're now saying you knew was wrong? He said in Alma 30 verse 53, I taught them because they were pleasing unto the carnal mind. If you have allowed those types of thorns into your soil, things that are pleasing unto the carnal mind, it will draw the resources in the wrong direction. And pretty soon you will find that what you've grown is weeds and not the seed that is the tree of life. So beware of the competition, beware of things that compete, that choke, that interfere, and that distract. There's our third soil, which leaves us the last one, the good soil, free of distractions, free of thorns, free of stones that allows them to have deep roots, and free of a crusty top that prevents the seed from coming in. This is not perfect soil. This is the good soil. And I love the fact that some people have a 30 yield. Some people have a 60 yield. Some people have a 90 and a 100 yield. We all contribute in our own different ways. And there ought not to be competition. I think the Lord is thrilled with the 30 year yield people. And they're doing their best and they're contributing to the kingdom to the degree that they can. Other people who yield 90% or even 100%, he has great expectations for them, and he loves them. All of this in the good soil. Beautiful parable, this parable of the sower. I really like this comment by James E. Talmadge where he says, let it not be forgotten that this is a parable, but it's also but a sketch. It's not a picture finished in detail. And so in the parable we are considering Jesus depicted the varied grades of spiritual receptivity that existed among humanity, and he characterized them with brevity in each instance. 
He neither said nor intimated that the hard-baked soil of the wayside might not be plowed or harrowed or fertilized to be rendered productive. He didn't say that the stony impediment to growth might not be broken up and removed or an increase of good soil be made by actual addition, nor that the thorns could not have been uprooted and their former habitat be rendered fit to support good plants. So it's a strong metaphor. It's a striking simile, he says, but he also says it's important for us to realize that it could still grow, like especially if we work with them. And so I really like that counsel by James E. Talmadge. And there are many commentators that have looked at this parable and seen some great similarity between this and the vision that Lehi has in 1 Nephi 8. So in the show notes, we kind of carve that out into four different groups of people. And it's almost, it's not perfect in my mind, but it's almost there. We see some of these same ideas with the with the people that get lost in the mist or the people that can't find their way or that go to the building and they just kind of, they kind of lose their way. Another point I want to make here before we move on is we don't have the question that preceded the parable. The prophet Joseph Smith said that a lot of times the best way to unlock the parable is to see the question that prompted the Savior to give the response. And so not having the question, I want to just submit this as a possible question. What if somebody came to Jesus and said, Jesus, how come some people love you? Like they think you're awesome and they want to follow you, and yet... You can go to the same city and then someone else can listen to you give the same speech and they're so mad at you. Why is that, Jesus? And I think that question could have very well been the question that prompted this response. In other words, Jesus is trying to say, hey, maybe it's not the fault of the seed. It's just a really interesting, something to noodle on. Yep. And let me pick up on what Mike just said about Joseph Smith saying, I ask, what is the question that brought the parable or the teaching? I think there's another direction. We could go to the very end. What is the problem that the parable is designed to solve? And allow me to see if I can point out that the next parable is a lot deeper and a lot richer and a lot more significant to Latter-day Saints than you're going to find in Matthew chapter 13. It is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, the way it reads in Matthew 13 is it's a very interesting parable that says wheat and tare are going to grow together until the harvest. So the idea is there was a man who sowed good seed in his field. And then verse 25, while men slept, that's going to be very important. While men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares. And then when the tares were springing up, they came to the Lord and said, Where did the tares come from? Well, an enemy did this. Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? No, lest while you gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. Now, that's really it. He'll interpret the parable later on in Luke chapter 13, but all he really does is he clarifies what each piece is. Verse 36, declares the parable of the tares of the field. Well, he that sowed the seed was the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Now, that's as far as he goes in the New Testament. So you and I need to turn to modern-day Scripture. In the spirit of what he says to the Nephites in 3 Nephi, where he says, that's all that the Father was allowed me to say. I wish I could have told them more, but they weren't prepared to hear more. 
So there is more than just who is the sower, who sows the bad seed, who's the enemy, and what's the harvest. It's that sleeping period that he doesn't tell the Jews about that he will tell us about. So I'd encourage you to turn to Doctrine and Covenants section 86. No other parable gets this much attention in the Doctrine and Covenants. He doesn't take up any parable like he does the wheat and the tares. And he points out what he didn't say in the New Testament version. So section 86, thus saith the Lord unto my servants concerning the parable of the wheat and the tares. So he kind of picks it up. The, the field was the world. The apostles were the sowers of the seed. And after they, the apostles, have fallen asleep, the great persecutor of the church, the apostate, the whore, even Babylon, that maketh all nations to drink of her cup, in whose hearts the enemy, even Satan, sitteth to reign, behold, he sows the tares. In other words, this parable is about the latter days. The sleeping period, when the tares are being sown, is the apostasy. So he says in verse 4, in the last days, even now when the Lord is beginning to bring forth the word and the blade is springing up and is yet tender, he puts the setting of this parable in the latter days. Now the point of the parable is that you can't sometimes tell the difference between wheat and tears. I think he's making a commentary on life in the latter days. So he says in verse 7 of section 86, let the wheat and the tares grow together. What I hear him saying is one of the challenges of living in the latter days is sometimes you can't tell the difference between wheat and tear. Now, if you go to your Bible dictionary and look up the word tear, it will tell you that a tear was darnel grass, which was poisonous and looked like wheat until they both come to head at the very end of the harvest. So here's the problem. You and I live in a time with technology and with all that we have around us where you can hide that you're a tear. You can appear like wheat. And that's going to fool a lot of good people. Now, as I see that, I can make two positive choices and two hurtful choices. One positive choice is I look at someone and I think I see wheat. I look at Mike and say, you know what? Mike is incredible. And I think he would be a great influence in my life. And so I want to pull Mike into my life. I see wheat. And what Mike turned out to be was actually wheat. And I got it right. I got that one right. I judged correctly. I thought I saw wheat. I pulled it in and I fed on that wheat. Now, the other positive is I look at something and I say, that's a tear. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I do not want to let that into my life. Years ago, when I was a young man, I saw something that at first was intriguing, kind of beckoned me to pull it into my life. But I knew in my core, I knew in my gut that it was a tear, that I wanted nothing to do with it, and I kept it out of my life. And I have lived long enough to know that that was a poisonous tear that could have destroyed me. And I'm so grateful that in that instance, I got it right. I kept a tear out. So those are the positive ones. I see a wheat, it is a wheat, 
I fed myself. I see a tear. It is a tear. I kept a poison out. But now there's two dangerous ones. Mistake number one is I think I see wheat, but it's a tear. How many times have we judged poorly and we let a tear into our life that poisoned us because we thought it was wheat? And the other side of that is, I think I see a tear. I think I see a poison and I'm going to keep it out of my life. But what it actually was, was wheat. And I missed out on something that would have nourished me. See, people did that with Jesus. Some people saw Jesus and saw tear, and they kept him at a distance. But all he wanted to do was to heal them. Now, here's my point. Here's why I raised this issue. I believe the Book of Mormon was written for our day. I believe the authors of the Book of Mormon saw our day and saw the problems that we would have searched through their history and found the elements of their history that would solve our problems. So when I find this story in the Book of Mormon, in a very prominent place, it tells me that the Savior is very concerned about this in our day. So I want you to think, where in the Book of Mormon do people see wheat when it's really tear and let a tear in that poisons them? And where in the Book of Mormon do they see tear that they keep out and burn, only to find out later that it was wheat that would have fed them? That is the story of King Noah and Abinadi. The prominence of that story in the Book of Mormon is yelling out to me that the Savior is concerned that in our day, we make Noah blindness mistakes. We look at Noah's and they poison us. And we destroy the Abinadis of our lives who would have saved us. Those who followed Noah into that clearing when they left their wives and their children and then later regretted it, and when they decide to go back to their wives, Noah stops them and says, don't, and then the blinders come off and they finally see who he is and they realize he's a tear and they burn Noah because that's what you do with tares, right? You burn tares. And when they finally realize that Noah was a tear and they burn him, what do they need now? They need a prophet to guide them. Oh, wait, we burned him. They need their families to support them. Oh, wait, we left them behind for the Lamanites to destroy. They have destroyed their lives because they let Noah in. And the one they should have let in was Abinadi, who would have helped them avoid every problem that they are now going to face. You know, Bryce, I have a student whose close relative started listening to a, a Noah, and this individual was on the internet, and he would watch these things, and this individual would kind of become engrossed in the messages that this individual had. And over the course of about five years, Uh, my student's close relative found himself outside of the church and completely alienated from the truths that he'd been raised with. And this is not just an isolated incident. This is something that is probably part of the problem of our modern world. It's just part of the 
part of the difficulties of living in a world where we have access to so much information. And sometimes the most dangerous information is information that's true, but it's presented in a negative light or it's mostly true. And those sometimes it takes special training to kind of sift through and distinguish that voice and try to filter that out and you know where's the light and how do i see this and i think what you're talking about is really relevant especially in our age this demands our attention may i suggest the brilliance of the book of mosiah is set up to teach how to avoid this noah blindness there's a prophet that comes before the story of noah even though chronologically he came after I truly believe that the teachings of Benjamin are placed before Noah as if to say, this is how you can prevent that blinder from going on. And then who contends against the people who have that blinder on? Abinadi. Abinadi's teachings are the solution to people who are Noah blind in order to help take those blinders off. And they're going to have a challenge ahead of them. So who's teaching? Who was once Noah blind and then teaches how to heal from it? His name is Alma. Do you look at the brilliance of the book of Mosiah? Benjamin comes first, then Abinadi, and then Alma. And I think the prominence of that book is trying to suggest Prevent this blindness by following the words of Benjamin. If you love someone who is Noah blind, the words of Abinadi can help you help them. Because didn't it work? Didn't the words of Abinadi help Alma take his blinders off? And then the words of Alma will help you heal. I'll leave that study to you as you study the Book of Mormon. But I just hope you see the significance of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Don't let it happen to you. Don't let Noah in and don't burn Abinadi. What a beautiful message from the Savior found all the way back in Matthew, but intended for us today in our day. There's just a great quote by Joseph Smith that the church in its infancy is also being discussed here. And he says, if you take this rash step of ripping out the tares, he says, you will destroy the wheat or the church with the tares. Therefore, it is better to let them grow together until the harvest or the end of the world, which means the destruction of the wicked, which is not yet fulfilled. We also see this played out in the parable of the gospel net, where Jesus talks to a group of individuals who are used to fishing, and he says, essentially, you throw the net out, and it's going to bring all kinds of fish, the good fish and maybe the fish you don't want to eat, but we want to bring everyone in, and we want to let them grow, and that's really what the church is. It's a place where, you know what, we're growing and we're doing our best, and who knows, that? but the terror could repent. You know, when Alma was sitting there listening to Abinadi, he was actually wearing the uniform of the enemy team, but he changed and he felt something. And so I really like Joseph's misinterpretation as to looking also at this as the church or the kingdom of God. And we're going to let the Lord sort that out. I really like that. And maybe it's also an invitation for us to kind of withhold some of those final judgments as Elder Oaks has encouraged us to do. Okay, so with that, we're going to go to the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, and that's Matthew 13. Look in verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. 
which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, this plant is going to grow to about 8 to 10 feet tall. A mustard seed really was small. And so the comparison of that to God's kingdom and comparing it to the smallest of seeds may have been kind of shocking to his audience because they were probably hoping for something bigger than maybe an eight-foot tree. But really what we see here is it really is something small when you compare it to the Roman Empire. And really that's what the Christianity was for the first few centuries. It was really, really small. But what the Savior's trying to say, at least one of the ways we can read this, is he's trying to say, even though it's starting small, it will eventually become big. I think that's one way to look at it. And I think another way to look at it is not its growth. I think that's what we tend to really focus on is the size. And an eight-foot, ten-foot tree is not very tall. He could have been talking about a sequoia if he wanted to emphasize growth. But the thing that makes mustard trees unique is the abundance of seed. That's why he points out that birds come and lodge in it because they can feed there. And I read this as, okay, you might see the kingdom of God as a small little seed, but the reality is it is a source of truth that will fill your soul. I think this is a reference back to the whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. You're treating the kingdom of God like a seed, but whosoever will drink of the water that I shall give him, it shall be in him a well of water that leads to quenching that thirst. And that's what I read here is the abundance of food for the birds. Come to the kingdom. It might look small. It might look insignificant. It might even be barley bread or five small fishes, which we'll talk about next week. But what it is, is a feast that you can't even consume all that he offers, and we're going to gather up 12 baskets of what's left over. Joseph Smith also likened it unto the Book of Mormon. And he said, Let us take the Book of Mormon, which a man took and hid in his field, and securing it by his faith to spring up in the last days or in due time, let us behold it coming forth out of the ground, which is indeed accounted the least of all seeds. But behold... It branching forth, yea, even towering with lofty branches and godlike majesty, until it, like the mustard seed, becomes the greatest of all herbs. And it is truth, and it is sprouted and come forth out of the earth, and righteousness begins to look down from heaven, and God is sending down his powers, gifts, and angels to lodge in the branches thereof. I really like it. However you read this parable, it really is beautiful, because to me, what it does indicate is, yes, small things can become great. It's something that to me speaks on many levels. After he discusses in Matthew 13, 36 through 43, his explanation of the wheat and the tares, where he talks about the sower being the son of man and the field being the world and so forth, he then shifts and talks about parables concerning the kingdom of heaven. And one of these is just a short verse. It's verse 44. But he says this, again, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man has found, he hideth, for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. And so it's this idea of a treasure hid in a field, and what would you give for it? And the Savior says, everything. 
That's what you would give. And then he kind of says it a different way, and he likens it unto a pearl. And he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. He gave all that he had. I like to liken this unto the idea of the journey to coming back to the king. And in that journey or that ascension, one of the things we covenant is to live the law of consecration. In the story of the hero's journey, the hero has to give everything that they have in all the stories. You know, whatever the story may be, I happen to like to talk about Star Wars, where Luke has to be fully committed to the light. But they're in all the stories. It's in the hymn of the pearl. It's in Moses. Moses has to give all that he can to save Israel. Why? Because it's a pearl of great price. Israel is likened unto God's son that Moses brings out of Egypt. So the pearl of great price can be many things, but one thing it is, it's that treasure, that treasure in heaven that we give all that we can to move forward to receive it. I love what Boyd K. Packer did in the very opening general conference in the conference center. Those of you who are old enough and remember conference in the tabernacle, remember sitting there on those hard wooden chairs, sometimes in the heat, and then we built this enormous, absolutely stunningly beautiful conference center. And the very first speaker, other than President Hinckley standing up and announcing and talking about the building, the first speaker was Boyd K. Packer. And the first thing he did was give a parable related to the Pearl of Great Price. A merchant man seeking precious jewels found at last the perfect pearl. He had the finest craftsman carve a superb jewel box and line it with blue velvet. He put his pearl of great price on display so others could share his treasure. He watched as people came to see it. Soon he turned away in sorrow. It was the box they admired and not the pearl. Do you get what he was trying to say? He was trying to subtly say to all of us, please don't be distracted by the beautiful building and miss the pearl that's being presented. I have since found so much application in that idea. And so when I teach mission prep classes, we talk about that concept, about not being the box that distracts from the pearl. Do you remember in the Book of Mormon how many times the behavior of the members of the church becomes an obstacle to the church growing? Are we the box that distracts from the pearl? Or are we a simple box that highlights the beauty of the pearl? Sometimes missionaries trying to promote religious excitement or prove or be flashy or be noticed actually distract from the pearl. Don't be the box that people notice. Let everyone see the pearl itself. I think that's a beautiful little application on the parable of the pearl of great price.
There's actually an early Christian document called the Hymn of the Pearl. Some people call it the Hymn of the Robe or the Parable of the Robe, but it's this story that very much, in my view, resonates with our doctrine. It's this story of this individual who's the son of the king and the queen in heaven, and he comes to earth, and he kind of has lost his way a little bit, and he kind of has forgotten who he is, and so the king and queen of heaven send a messenger down from heaven, and they remind him who he is, that he needs to get the pearl, and he needs to come home and put on his glorious garments that are in the heavens that he has lost. He's kind of lost his garment of light, as it's called. We'll link this in the show notes. I think it's beautiful. It's it's an apocryphal text that comes from the Acts of Thomas, but it really is beautiful because it's this invitation to make it past the serpent that's kind of trying to confuse us and to clutch the pearl and return back home with it. And so in one sense of the word, this pearl is our testimony of Jesus, or it's our ability to feel the Spirit. Or in another sense, it literally is the the sacred embrace in the Holy of Holies, that word kafar that's translated as atonement, to be wrapped up or to be eternally encircled about in the arms of the Lord. And so I see that pearl. And if you think about this with the Holy of Holies as it was in the first temple, that box in the Holy of Holies was a treasure box. Now, I know there wasn't a pearl in it, right? It had the the Torah in it and other, and other articles. But that idea of a treasure box in the Holy of Holies is this idea of we're coming home and we're coming home to Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. And so I really like that image of that pearl. It's just a beautiful thing. And what would we give for it? And the answer is everything. So in Matthew 13, 47 through 51, Jesus is talking about fishing. In verse 47, he says, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. Okay, so one of the ways I read this is we don't make judgments. We just go and we preach the word and all are invited. Now that really was something that was counter to the culture of Jesus's day. Many of the people in his audience were of the Jewish faith and they really did have an us versus them mentality. And many of them did not eat with Gentiles or those other people. And some people were really offended that Jesus ate with Gentiles or publicans. We, we know that he ate at Matthew's house. And Matthew was a wealthy tax collector. We know that Jesus treated women as equals and taught them. There are stories of women sitting at his feet and learning from him as if they're uh, the mathetes or the students that are about to learn to become teachers themselves. And that was countercultural. And so I really see this parable as Jesus trying to say, we need to rethink how we view each other. Yeah. The gospel gets everyone, and we don't all do it the same way or see it the same way. Now, I know we'll get to Romans later on this year, but allow me to jump to a concept taught by Paul in the book of Romans. There are not very many things we all have to do exactly the same. There is room in the gospel to do it the way that is best for me. That's why we believe in principles. Joseph Smith was asked one time, how do you govern such a large people? 
And he says, I teach them correct principles and they govern themselves. Being led by principles means I adapt it to me in a way that's appropriate for me. Now, the fact that the gospel gathers people of every kind is going to suggest other people don't do it the same way. And we ought not to turn it into a doubtful disputation. Paul will say in Romans chapter 14, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. And then he uses a food analogy. One believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who are you that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he will be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. And then he gives another example about observing the Sabbath day. The whole idea is the gospel gathers people who are going to live the gospel differently than you do. And that's okay. We ought not to impose my interpretation of the gospel on other people. Just because it's right for me doesn't mean it's right for you. So, for example, last week we talked about the Sabbath day. What you choose to do on the Sabbath day is not necessarily what needs to be enforced on someone else. If you choose to do something on the Sabbath day that you think is in harmony with how you interpret it, and someone else chooses not to do something on the Sabbath day, we shouldn't contend against each other for whom Christ passed away. There is room in this net for everyone. I want to end with this beautiful little song that our children sing out of the children's songbook. It says, If you don't walk as most people do, some people walk away from you, but I won't. I won't. If you don't talk as most people do, some people talk and laugh at you. But I won't. I won't. I'll walk with you. I'll talk with you. That's how I'll show my love for you. Jesus walked away from none. He gave his love to everyone. So I will. I will. Jesus blessed all he could see and then turned and said, come follow me. And I will. I will. I'll walk with you. I'll talk with you. That's how I'll show my love for you. Let the net gather of every kind and let them know that they are welcome in the church of Jesus Christ. And with that, we thank you for listening. We will see you next week when we cover John 5 and 6, Matthew 14, and Mark 6. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.